as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Our scripture reading, our New Testament reading is from Revelation 16, beginning to read with verse 1. We'll read through, originally the bulletin says that we'll read through verse 21, but we're going to save that for next week. We'll halt today at verse 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him the glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom and was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon this is the word of the Lord if you're visiting this morning you probably as we read that said what in the world is this you know uh The people that have been coming, the members and frequent visitors that have been coming uh, for the last few months, they are up on this. And they, I hope most of you can put this in context. So we're going to begin this morning uh, after our prayer. We're going to put this in a very briefly in context for those that are visiting with us. So you can catch up just a little bit 
But even, even those of you who have been here every week, this is one of those passages that you look and say, what's this mean? What's this about? What's, what's this about drying up the Euphrates? What's that have to do? What, what about these three frogs? You know, what about those frogs that are there? Well, we're going to talk. That's, that's our main focus this morning. When I began at the first week with this passage, uh, I had intended to just kind of to, to say what it meant. But by the middle of the week, I was totally captivated and said, we've got to spend some major time here Sunday morning. So I pray that in these next few minutes or when you leave here in a few minutes, you will be able to say, I got it. I really get it now what that passage is saying. So let's begin by praying because John Sartell won't be able to do that. Let's begin by praying to the Father and asking him to teach us. Let's pray. Our Father, first is your priests. We come a congregation of your priests bowing before you and thank you for answered prayer. Thank you for how you blessed the Cruz family this week. Thank you for how you blessed the Shea family this week and how you brought comfort and how you brought testimony uh, in everything that had to do with those memorial services and everything that had to do with the lives of Dr. John Cruz and Dr. Cole Shea. Our Father, we thank you for their lives. We thank you for the testimony of this week, and we thank you for that comfort that you brought in this time. But we continue to pray as your priest, and we bring Kate Cruz before you, Father. Bring healing to her. But more importantly, we pray that you would bring comfort to her soul. If you don't bring healing here. We know that you've brought ultimate healing, and we pray that you would bless Kate, that she would look forward to what you have prepared for her. Bless John Morrison, Father, and cause him to be a comfort to her. Our Father, we pray for the marriages of this congregation, that you will bless where there's division, where there's hurt, where there's pain. Bring healing between husbands and wives. Bring healing between children and parents and children and grandparents. Our Father, as we are here on this Lord's Day morning, we ask as we look forward to this week that you would cause us to be salt and light out in the Mid-South this week in our work, in our jobs, at leisure, at the club, whatever we're doing, we pray that you would make us conscious of our calling to be salt, to be light for Jesus Christ in this world. And now we pray as we open your word, oh, Father, John Sartell cannot speak so that it will make any difference. We pray. That once more this morning, we would hear your voice in this place. That we would hear your voice in this sanctuary. 
that you would awake us to our sin. Awake us to the grace of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us from this passage. We're your children. And we're simply asking, tell us this part of the story. Tell us this part of the story. Thank you, Father. Amen. How can I recognize the voice of Satan? In chapter 5 of Revelation, let's, we'll put this in context. In chapter 5 of Revelation, Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, returns to glory. And he takes the great scroll from the hand of the Father. The scroll, that scroll is the deed of ownership to all of earth and all of heaven. That scroll rightly belongs to Jesus. Remember his words to the disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by the Father. Now this great scroll is sealed shut by seven seals. Jesus begins to rip the seals. He begins to break the seals that had held the scroll. When he broke those seals, events and judgments were revealed that would take place between the ascension and the return of Jesus. The removal of the seven seals and the revelation of those events is followed by seven trumpets. Seven trumpets blown by seven angels. These seven trumpets are announcing the same events that were described in the scroll when the seals were removed. It talks about the same events, but they're seen from a different angle. The events and judgments announced by the trumpets seem more intense and covered more territory. The seven trumpets were followed by seven scenes or visions that all the thing, all seven visions had the same theme. They described the conflict between Christ and Satan or the conflict between Satan and the people of God, the people of Christ. That was the subject of every one of those seven visions. The seven scenes and seven visions were followed by seven angels pouring out seven bowls of wrath, God's wrath or God's judgment on the earth. Now, back on October the 9th, before we took a break from Revelation, we looked at the first four bowls being poured out. It began at the end, actually, not in 16, it began at the end of chapter 15. We saw a scene filled with gravitas. 
as seven angels were pictured in a solemn procession. It was like they were, they were on a parade, one after the other. And they proceeded out of the sanctuary, out from the holiness of God. Each is given a bowl filled with the wrath of God, filled with righteous judgments. On the 9th of October, we saw the first four bowls poured out. That brings us this morning to the fifth bowl. Look at Revelation 16, 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. The plague of this bowl was poured out directly, directly on the throne of the beast, on the throne of the Antichrist. Here the Christ of heaven, the Lamb, came in power to the very epicenter of evil on earth. He came to the headquarters of evil, to the throne of the beast. And what happened? Its kingdom, he poured this bowl out and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now there's no way of knowing what what that darkness was. I was with someone last night and he was speaking about his homeland, where the country he came from. And he said to me, we've known each other a long time. And he said to me, John, it's so dark. And he wasn't talking about a physical darkness, was he? He was talking about a moral and spiritual darkness, much like we have here in many places. I was able to say, him, I know what you mean. But I think here in this place, he was not only speaking, God was not only pouring out a a bowl of wrath and darkness over the land that was spiritual. I think he he was bringing a physical darkness to it. He was saying, you prefer, you have preferred the darkness of the beast? Well, I'll give you even more darkness. I'll give you a lack of physical light. I hope, as we've looked at these plagues, I hope that you have seen that they resemble the plagues that God brought upon Egypt in judgment as he brought his people out of Egypt. There is a similarity. There's a parallel, the sores, the boils, the turning water to blood, the darkness. Remember, just before, just before He brought the death angel killing the firstborn all across Egypt. Just before that, the plague before that was what? It was darkness. Now, like the plagues in Egypt, these plagues here have a cumulative effect. Look look again at the verse. In its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. That they chewed their tongues in anguish and frustration, not just at the darkness, but all of these plagues. They came one right after the other, after the other. God had brought, now God had brought judgment and brought the battle right to the capital of evil, right to the throne of evil. 
Well, what happened next? Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, that does not seem to be a bowl. That doesn't sound like a bowl that's filled with wrath, the anger full, filled with judgment. And this requires some explanation. In John's day, the Euphrates marked the eastern end of the Roman Empire. Their empire, the Roman Empire stopped at the Euphrates River. On the other side of the river was the land of the Parthians. The Parthian Empire was centered in what is now Iran. The Roman Empire, the, the, the battles between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire are chronicled in history. They were great battles. And as powerful as Rome was during all those centuries, they never conquered the Parthians. The Parthians were known for their excellence in battle. They were excellent equestrians. They were excellent archers. Never conquered by Rome. Greatly feared by Rome. Over and over again, as we look at Scripture, we see God sometimes drying up rivers to either stymie the enemy or to bring relief to his people. Remember when Israel was fleeing Egypt, and here was Pharaoh changed his mind. He sent his entire army after them, and they're caught between the army and the Red Sea. And God opens up the Red Sea. His people go across the Egyptian army stops, starts across, and he brings the water back, and they're completely destroyed. Well, here, God, this is strange. God is opening. He drives up the Euphrates. For what purpose? It's right there. So that the kings of the east may take that path to come to do battle with God himself. Now, that's strange, isn't it? But it even gets, and we'll come back to that in a minute, and you'll understand why. As God dries up the Euphrates, John sees in this vision unclean spirits coming out of the mouths of the dragon, Satan, and the beast, the Antichrist, and the mouth of the false prophet. Look at it. Verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. All right. These spirits look like frogs. This is fascinating, isn't it? Well, frogs were considered to be unclean in the Old Testament. So what do these demonic spirits do? They go throughout the world. They go to the kingdoms of the world to persuade those leaders, those kings and kingdoms to come and do battle against God and his people. Now, these demonic spirits, we can call them persuaders. They were ambassadors of Satan sent 
to the kingdoms of the world. Remember, the key is this. Remember, they came from the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, from the mouth of the Antichrist, the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. In other words, they were the words of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. They are speaking for the dragon, for the beast, for the prophet. Now, this is a great, this is a great effort in the proper in propaganda for evil. It's a great effort in this. You know, as we think, we think, we listen, as we think about it, we listen to propaganda every day. Sometimes from other nations, sometimes from our own government. We hear their spin, their propaganda, their ideology. Well, that's what this is. The propaganda coming from the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the prophet, calls for the nations to assemble in a place in time uh, to actually battle against God. Now, this has been happening. We can say, look at this, just like all these other things that have happened. That's been happening since the ascension all the way for the last 2,000 years until we get to the second coming. But what is described here is the last great effort of Satan to overthrow the reign of God. The, the passage pictures the voices of Satan, the Antichrist, and the prophet of the Antichrist going throughout the world. Voices are symbolized by the three unclean frogs. On Reformation Sunday, that just last week, we looked at one of the battle cries of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. That was the cry of Calvin and Luther. Scripture is our authority. Scripture is the foundation on which we build our lives, our families, the church. It's God's Word. What we see here in Revelation 16 is the power of Satan's word, the power of Satan's voice in the world. Notice that he does not send a great army to threaten these kings and force them to come and do battle. He could have done that. He does not. He is calling them to assemble. He's calling them to do what they have wanted to do throughout history. It's a passage we looked at several weeks ago, and we'll look at it again and again and again. It describes our culture to a T. It's from Psalm 2. And it, it describes what the nations have sought to do in our fallen, fallen world in every century. David wrote this psalm over 3,000 years ago. Look at it. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst 
the bonds of the Lord and his anointed apart and cast their cords from us. The, the nation, he says, the nations rage. What are they raging about? They're plotting against God. The kings and presidents are set in concrete in their opposition to God. They plot against him. The kings and the nations have cried out since the beginning, we want autonomy. Look at the nations of the Old Testament. We want autonomy. We want to rule ourselves. And they throw off the chains that bind them. The chains of his will and his written word, his commands, his reigns. If you can't see that happening in our culture today, then you don't understand. It was happening in David's day. It was happening in Apostles' Day in Rome. It's happening today. In Revelation 16, Satan is calling them to accomplish what they've always wanted to do one last time. We can understand this in our own lives. Satan's voice always speaks to our sinful hearts, to our sinful appetites, and what we want. For instance, Satan does not make greed and materialism look ugly. Satan says, look at these glorious possessions you can have. Look at the prestige and the power they bring. Satan doesn't make adultery look dark and look evil and look terrible. It's attractive. It's appealing. He says, it's what you deserve. Your husband or your wife does not appreciate you, and out here is someone so much better. He, he makes same-sex attractions look attractive as it expresses what? Sexual freedom. That's what this is. Look at how the media and Hollywood portray same-sex relationships and marriages. Satan in chapter 1 of Genesis, is not taking a whip to the back of Eve saying, eat that fruit. He's saying, Eve, look how beautiful. Look how beautiful this is. Take the fruit. His voice, you want to know the voice of Satan? It will always be appealing. Secondly, his voice is soft on truth. Listen to Jesus describe the major characteristic of Satan. Now, these are the words of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. We would fall on our faces before him if he suddenly appeared. We wouldn't need a book and protocol. Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, you would be forced by his holiness and by his majesty and his glory on your face. And this is what that Jesus says. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and look at it, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. What's the opposite of truth? The opposite of truth is a lie. He says, so he goes on, he says, when he lies, 
He speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. His voice is soft on truth. What did he say to Eve? Hath God said, you shall not eat of the fruit? Even in his question, he's like, he he knows good and well what God said. Then he tells her, Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. God's deceiving you, Eve. But who's lying? Satan is lying. In Revelation 16, the voice of Satan, think about this. The voice of Satan is calling the kings of the world to throw off the rule of God in their world. He's calling them to physically war against an omnipotent force. He knows they cannot win. He knows that. Go back and look at Revelation 12, 12. We looked at this several weeks ago. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan's defeat. Satan knows He's not going to win. And he's calling these kings to battle, to their death and to their defeat. He's lying in utter hatred of God. He will destroy as much of God's creation as possible. Satan was deceiving. He was lying to the kings whom he called to come and war against God. God even enabled their coming by drying up the Euphrates. Let me ask you a question. We talked about it a minute ago. But now this is a different, this is not only his voice is appealing. It'll be soft on truth. Does adultery, in a crowd like this is bound to be, does adultery look good to you right now? Does it seem to be a delectable fruit? Does it? Satan's lying. It's not delectable fruit. Heroin, coke, other drugs look so appealing. Like LSD in the 60s, here I'm dating myself. Hey, it's a trip. It's a way to ultimate freedom. That's still the message. It's a way of ultimate pleasure. When I was writing this, I remembered a book that was written by a man named Welch. It had a great title. It was talking about this. And the title of it was Addiction, A Banquet in the Grave. What a description. Satan's lying. You want the gods of materialism? The Mercedes, the six, seven, eight bedroom house, the summer home on the beach. Satan says, come and worship these things. Come and live for these things. It's like Satan said to Jesus, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Make wealth the chief end 
of your life. And your soul will find complete happiness, complete satisfaction. Satan's lying. He's lying. What's the opposite of lying? Truth. This is huge. Think about this. It, just let it possess your mind for a minute. We've talked about this. We talk about it individually at parties and discussions. We live in a culture that says, you can have your truth. Whatever your truth is, that's true to you, and it's true. And this man over here has his truth, and it's his truth. And it, it's, ob, it's, it's opposite of your truth, but it's still truth. Because in this world, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Where does that come from? Where did our culture get that? And we will say, oh, it comes from the sinful heart of man. That's where it comes from. And you're right in part, but only in part. Because behind man's sinful heart is a creature of incredible power. Incredible evil. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and if you've been asleep up till now, I hope you haven't, but if you have been, just look at this. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church. And he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, not anymore, but you once walked that way, following the course of this world. And then he adds this, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He can say that. I can say that to you this morning. We once, we once were dead in our trespasses and sin. And we walked according to the course of this world who the world is walking in lockstep under the leadership of Satan. And that he's still now, right now, working in the sons of disobedience. The voice of Satan will always be appealing. The voice of Satan will always be soft on truth. Thirdly, the voice of Satan will be soft on sin. What did Jesus say about sin? Look at it in Matthew 5. Now, see, you see what I'm doing, don't you? Here's Satan lying. Here's Jesus with the truth. So let's, we've looked at what Jesus would say about truth, what Satan would say about truth. Well, what will Satan say about sin? He's will be soft on sin. What will Jesus say about sin? Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your own members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. The Jesus who gave us this table... These are his words. Jesus is not soft on sin. He took sin seriously and he still does. In the 1960s, our culture went through a revolution. Not a revolution fought by military armies, 
but it went through a cultural revolution, a cultural war. It was called the sexual revolution. Our culture threw off the truth of the Word of God and began to worship at the altar of total sexual freedom, total sexual freedom before marriage and during marriage. Homosexual relationships were encouraged. Since that time, our culture has been engaged in one great sexual orgy. You want a description of what's happening today? That's it. Whether you're watching commercials on television or halftime at a football game, everywhere you turn your eye, the orgy continues. What happened? How did the church respond to the sexual revolution? I was there. I saw it. It's still happening today. The response of the church was, we've got to go soft on casual sex. We've got to go soft on adultery. We've got to go soft on homosexuality. And the church has gradually become silent. And the silence continues to grow to this present hour. We hear from many in the church that in order to be missionaries to our promiscuous culture, we must soften our language. In order to be missionaries to this immoral culture, we must soften our language about casual sex and homosexuality. Paul was the greatest missionary of the first century. What did he say about sexual perversity? Look at Romans 1, 24 to 28. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, look at this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Do you see it? A truth for lie. The truth of God for the lie of Satan and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, Paul used those strong words in his letter to the church at Rome. We need to hear this. He did not use those words in the letter to the church at Ephesus or to the church at Philippi or to the church at Galatia or to church at Colossae. Why did he use those words to the church at Rome? Why? Because Rome was eaten alive, was eaten up, was renowned for the sin of homosexuality. And Paul did not take the advice of the modern evangelical church. He refused to mediate his language. Paul was being the true missionary of compassion by warning the Romans of the grave danger of their sins. 
People, when we soften our language about any sin out in, the, in, in a world filled with sin, we, do know that we don't do them any favor. We don't warn them. In the end, one of the great questions that the world is going to ask is, why didn't you tell us? Until the world sees the depravity of their sin, they'll never go to Calvary. Why? Calvary is about salvation from sin. That's it. It's about salvation from the judgment of God on sin. The voice of Satan will always be appealing. The voice of Satan will be soft on truth. The voice of Satan will be soft on sin. Fourthly, the voice of Satan will be soft on justice. Look at this. There was no warning from Satan to the kings of the earth that God was coming in judgment. Satan knew he was coming in judgment. Satan hated the justice of God. He wanted a world where God's truth, God's law, and God's justice were non-existent. There was a day like this in the Old Testament, Jeremiah prophesied that God's judgment was coming on Israel. And the rest of the, most of the rest of the church of Israel in the Old Testament said, oh, be quiet, be quiet. You can't say things like Jeremiah. And they kept, they went out and told the people, peace, peace. Everything's peace. Look how we're prospering. You know what God said? God said, you say peace, peace, but there is no peace. At the end of his second letter, Peter prophesied that people would come and just before the second coming, they would say, where's the second coming? And they wouldn't be asking a question. They would be making a statement. They would be saying, hey, he's not coming. And there is no judgment. And there is no ultimate justice. And you just don't have to worry about that. And what did Peter say? Peter says, you have forgotten Noah and the flood. You've forgotten that God sent the flood on an immoral, depraved world. And nearly wiped it out. You've forgotten that. We have the rainbow, don't we? But the rainbow doesn't save us from God's judgment. It saves us from the water. In the rainbow, God says, no more water. It will be the fire next time. Satan was calling to the kings and cultures of the world to war against God in the rule of God, to throw the sovereign God out of power, to rebel against his word, rebel against his rule. And Revelation 16 is demonstrating, demonstrating Satan doing that one last time. But if we would understand our culture, we must know that that's what Satan is calling to our culture to do today. The constant call of Satan, the constant voice of Satan in our culture we see that his voice, you want to recognize his voice? His voice speaks to our culture in an appealing way. It's soft on truth. It's soft on sin. And it's soft on justice. There's another voice loose in our culture. It's growing faint in our day. Very faint. It's the voice of Jesus calling us to his gospel. It's not, that voice is not, and calls us to the gospel, calls us to be saved. 
but his voice is not soft on truth. And his voice is not soft on sin. And it's not soft on justice. We're coming to the table. This table is the voice of God telling us sin is serious. This is the body of Jesus broken in judgment for our sins. This is the blood of Jesus shed for our sins as he took them upon himself. The awful judgment of those bowls. Those bowls. The awful judgment. We read them and you said, this is awful. The awful judgment of those bowls fell on Jesus. Those same bowls were poured out on him in justice for our sins. This is a table for sinners. Come, come to the table. That's the voice of Jesus. That's the voice of Jesus. Our hymn, as we come to the table, is a great hymn. You may not have sung it previously, but oh, the words to it are wonderful. No, not despairingly. We don't come in despair to Jesus. Hymn number 495, we'll sing stanzas one, two, three, and four.